Well, look, Dad, your friend is building it. My friends, we were downtown driving around the new soccer stadium that is being built right here in St. Louis, Missouri, when my son Patrick yelled that out from the back seat of the car. Look, Dad, your friends are building it. He was referring to my friends at Keeley Companies. Keeley Companies is proud to be a part of the team that is bringing Major League Soccer to America's first soccer capital right here in St. Louis, Missouri. As construction partners of the St. Louis City Stadium, they are looking forward for this project to be a place for entertainment, camaraderie, and passion for generations to come. You can learn more about that project and look what else they're building, Dad, by visiting them right now online at KeeleyCompanies.com. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, my friends, to celebrate Jazz Appreciation Month, I am honored to welcome one of the most accomplished jazz musicians of his or any generation. Get ready for it. This is going to be an exciting show. As a prolific guitarist and composer, you're going to know this name. Kevin Eubanks is most recognized for his role as former music director of the Tonight Show band appearing on that stage for 18 years. That's a long time, family, with a guy you also may recognize, Jay Little. So for 18 years, those two did life together. They played music together. They made history together. Yet it's what led up to this iconic role that I'm going to find, I think, most intriguing as we discuss life with Kevin. Today, you're going to hear Kevin share what it is like to grow up with musical influences all around him. Very cool stories. You're going to hear what it's like to hitchhike to gigs around Philadelphia at 25. No, he wasn't 25. He wasn't 21. He wasn't even 18 he was 13 years old, going gig to gig, bar to bar, playing music, learning how to create something beautiful. It's a great story. And I can't forget to mention as you listen to this episode today, you're going to hear Kevin Eubanks share a fantastic impersonation of Jay Leno. My friends, you won't want to miss any of it. So grab your favorite Live Inspired journal. Grab something to sip on while we step into this conversation with a guy whose name you recognize, but whose life you're going to be positively influenced by once you hear it. So without further ado, my friends, please welcome to our Live Inspired stage, your newest friend and mine, Kevin Eubanks. Kevin, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Thank you. For, thank you for having me here. I'm glad to be here. I had known about you before we booked the time, but in preparing for today, I felt like I was getting ready to bring a friend onto the show. I love your story. I love your heart. I love what you've achieved, but I love how you've achieved this level of success has not at all been about pursuing that success. So we're going to be unpacking all of that during this conversation. But when you meet somebody, whether you're in New York or LA or somewhere in between, and you're like, Kevin Eubanks, man, I think I know that name. Kevin, what do you do? So when they ask you, Kevin Eubanks, what do you do or who are you? How do you respond to that? It's hard to, to really express that. I guess what I do tell people is that I do what's in front of me 
and I try and do a uh, sincere job with what's in front of me because it makes me feel something more than just in the doing of it. It, it feels like I'm ex embracing something at the same time that I'm doing something. And if I can't embrace what's happening while I'm contributing, it seems like there's a little disconnect. So I guess the short answer would be what I do is embrace and contribute at the same time. And that's what I look for when, I, when I'm doing something. I think I got that from my dad. He always would say, do the best that you can or just don't do it at all. Put your heart into it. Right. Is, are you wasting your time? Are you using your time? Or are you in the moment of doing it? Are you, you know? So when we say clean your room, clean the room. Don't, oh, I'd rather go out and play ball or something like that. It's, it's, yeah, but that's your room. That's yours. That's, that's where you sleep. That's where your dreams are. And I didn't know what, you know, <laughs> okay, fine. Yeah, I'll, you know, I'll say, oh, and by the way, don't push everything under the bed. And, and pretend like you clean the room because in life, if you do that, it'll come back to you. Never stop until it's done, whether great or rather small, do it right or don't do it at all. Keep that echoing in my head. I'm not quite sure exactly what I'm doing all the time, but I know whether I feel good doing it or not. What a great way to start it. Not only with the important work that is in front of us right now, but with those who taught us to do it well. So you, you started talking about your dad and your dad's a fascinating character. The more I learned and read about him, I believe a police officer in Philadelphia, tough time to be doing that kind of work. But I want to pivot a little bit away from dad to mom. Vera ensured that music was always being played in the Eubank house. Would you talk about your mom for a little bit? Ever since I realized that that was my mom, other than just what mothers do, but her love of music mm. and, and her love of church, Ever since I can remember, I was on the organ bench sitting next to my mom while she's, you know, directing the choir, the church music to this and that. And that was just normal to me. And every Friday and Saturday, she'd be teaching piano lessons, mostly Chopin and Bach and, and classical music, which she's got the reason from doing that. And so I heard it all the time. And some of the students, they played violin as well as taking piano lessons. So all of this was the average day for us in, in the household. And all of that just starts to become the norm. And my mom knew I was a really, really shy child. And she always tried to get me to come out of my shell, which hasn't stopped yet. I'm still pretty much a shy person, but you still do whatever it is that you have to do, but still it, it doesn't go anywhere. And she always wanted me to come out more and do more and, you know, stand, you know, be confident. And, and I, said, I said, Mom, I feel confident when I, hit, when I see you playing, when I watch you playing. And I just don't know if I have that. So she always encouraged us to practice more, to just have fun doing it and just open yourself up to things. You know, I wanted to play violin. She said, okay, let's try violin. I wanted to play guitar, wanted to play trumpet. And she says, what about piano? The piano's here. I can I teach piano lessons. Why don't, why don't you do it? But she never forced me to do it. She says, I think you'd be naturally a, a piano player. But she never forced me to do it. Mom and my dad, they never forced us to go into church. And they were knee deep. They were deep into the church. And what I loved going to church was hearing the music of, of the church. I don't know if I felt all the rest of it. I felt, you know, 
whatever it was, it was coming through the music. What kind of music were they playing, Kevin? It was gospel and it's a Baptist church. Uh, my grandmother had a storefront church. My brother and I, Robin, we played tambourine and bass drum. We uh, sold water ices between the first <laughs> service and the second service. That was just the way it was. We came up listening to loving the music. And it was all people in the neighborhood that was at the church. So some people sang really well and other people couldn't sing well at all. But it didn't matter because they felt everything that they did when they were singing, when they, they felt the energy from, from the religion and, and they, all of that touched them so much. And I keep thinking about that today. Have I ever been touched as much about mm. music as they did? And they were not quote unquote musicians, but they let it out. What they were feeling, it, it came out, whether it was in tune, whether it was not in tune, but that's what touched everybody in there. And that's what made me love the music that was coming out of church. And my mom didn't know it at the time, but that's just going to church all the time gave me that energy that I want to play more music. I want to play more music because it just felt real. Before we recorded that uh, little John O'Leary was burned as a child and we talked about that for a while. We also didn't talk much about this, but there were a lot of folks praying for us in the community, including this big, large African-American Baptist church in St. Louis. Really? And one of the things was once I got out and they rebuilt our house and we moved back in, that choir came to sing at our church. And our church was primarily white. And this church was primarily African-American. And they brought in the kind of music that woke our church up. And although I'm sure some of the voices were a little bit off and some of the clapping may be a little bit off. Right. I hadn't thought about them, Kevin, since you started sharing that story. And I I don't know if I remember the words, but I know how I felt. And I know I was moved. And I think music can do that. And it can do it in a church. But you also proved it can happen at home. It can happen on big stages. Also, as a child for you, it can happen in bars. You were playing in Philadelphia at bars. I think you called them clubs. But it's a bar, man. As a 13-year-old, tell me how that went down. That was uh, that was very interesting. I was 13. People started asking me to, to play in bands in Philadelphia. Every neighborhood had bands. West Philly, South Philly, Germantown, Mount Airy. Every, every area in Philadelphia had bands. Music was so rich in Philadelphia. And at 13, people started saying, oh, you know, you should join our band. And it was an organ player was, you know, a singer was. And I said, yeah, I want to play. I want to play. And they were playing at bars. Um, and my dad said, no way. You're not going in to play bars at night at 13 years old. There's a lot of things going on in the streets out here. No, that's, that's not going to happen. I said, mom, mom, help. And so her and my dad started talking. And, and she was saying, if he was going to be a musician, just let him do it. He'll, he'll, it, it'll be okay. And he, you know, somehow he says, okay, but you know, somebody's mother has to be there too. The organ player's mom has to be there. For you know, at 13 years old, I'm in um, 24th in York, the Chatterbox. That was, that was it. And I played there a few mm -hmm. times. Wow. It, it was great. And from that, it just turned into the next thing and into the next thing, but that's where it started. And I was 13. I didn't know what I was doing. It just got more and more into it. So 
that conversation was, you know, a discussion with my mom and dad about that. And, but later on, I realized they both were trying to support me right. in a different way. Dad didn't want me to get hurt in the bar. What are you doing in the bar? People, you know, you're going to drink, you're going to do this, you know, and other people, you know, you just don't know what's, what's there. So he's trying to support me. And then he finally says, you're going to have to use your brain. You're going to have to think about things. Be careful about, you know. So it was an education in a way at the same time. And my mom said, well, if he's going to play music, go out there and do it. And, you know, mm. just, just do it because you feel great about doing it. When did this shy kid who was not clamoring for the spotlight recognize that he had a, a unique talent musically? I got the first feeling that I had something to contribute was maybe 15 or 16 years old. And people would always pick me up to go to rehearsals. And because I, I wasn't old enough to drive, I didn't drive until I was 26 years old because I was always the youngest person in the bands. So people would always pick me up and take me somewhere. So I didn't know how to get around anybody's because I'm sitting in the back seat. I don't know where we're going. And so it started then. And, and one, one time this guy, he had a, he had a band and says, I need a guitar player. I said, okay, I play guitar. And uh, I said, I don't drive. Somebody's gonna have to pick me up. He says, I'll come pick you up. And then we did our first show and he says, um, does everybody notice, you know, something about your playing? Says, you know, does that always happen when you play? I mean, even the, the people in the band said, you know, we got to keep him in the band. He gets everybody excited when he plays the solo or something. I said, I don't know. I guess so. I, I'm not sure. But he looked at me and says, whatever happens, just keep playing. Because you're, you're bringing something. Just yeah. keep playing. You know, we're, we're trying to do it. Says, whatever happens, just just keep doing it. And that's when I felt a little change started happening because I was always shy. I used to play with my back to the audience. I was so shy that after that little time period, I felt like, okay, that's what I want to do for real. And I want to get better and better and better at it. So I used to hike around Philadelphia to um, hitchhike around Philadelphia to go to different rehearsals and you know not everybody was into coming picking me up so i would really be hitchhiking all over philadelphia to go to rehearsals i'd walk through neighborhoods but it's something about children carrying instruments in neighborhoods it was like a a shield around you mm. nobody bothered you People were like, all right, little man, little man. Yeah, keep playing, keep playing. I, you know, and I was a little nervous. I'm just walking, trying to, you know. So those kind of things just get into you. And uh, it's a, I need to take this seriously and, and feel good about it because there's something that was lifting me to, to go through all of it. So I just kept doing it. And my brother, my older brother, Robin, he was doing the same thing. All of it kind of gave me some kind of muse right. that kept things going in spite of how shy I was. And I was always shy and I'm still shy. It doesn't go away, but other things grow at the same time. Man, mm. we could spend a lot of time talking about Berkeley or talking about upon graduation, moving into New York and the first album. I'm curious though about the trip you took as a young man to India and Pakistan. I think you went to Jordan, a couple other places. 
How did that trip come about? And what was that experience like for you? That was the State Department tour. And they called me and said, we would like you to participate with your group. Would you be interested in doing that? And I said, absolutely, I want to go. I never thought about being in India, or Pakistan, Jordan. I'd never been into a part of the world that there was no Western type of things going on. And that changed a lot of stuff. You just saw people were alive, they were doing their thing. And it was, it, it wasn't what I didn't, at first I didn't know exactly what it was. It was just different. It was, and then you go to different places and you see Christianity here. They're going to, you know, people are here and they look at you real funny. It's like, you know, we have our own religion. All this was going on at the same time. So it wasn't so much about, oh, we, you know, I want to play great here. It's the first time here. But by the time you go through all of these different places, I understood there's things going around that I have no clue about. And you start meeting people and you stay in touch with people, you become friends with people. And, and the way they look at the United States, the way they look at Western medicine, the way they look at Western food, the way, they, and you look at that way and you stop. This is one thing that happened that really made me think about things. This particular thing happened in India. We wanted to eat. We were afraid that, you know, it might get ill from the food, from the vegetables, because they always had us eat at the uh, ambassador's house. I said, well, you know, this is grown the way you're used to being grown. If you get food here, you have to be careful because your body's not used to the soil and, and all that. So uh, we go to a restaurant and we were just eating eggs and french fries all the time because we thought that was safe. I'm going to have, you know, because I, I didn't want to just go to the ambassador's house all the time. I said, I want to see. I want to see what's going on. So we're eating and uh, we finish eating and nobody comes to our table. We're ready to go. So finally I said, all right, I go over and I walk to, you know, one of the people that worked and said, been waiting to pay the bill. And this, and, and, and this guy looked at me and says, um, you don't even know how the, the level of disrespect that you're showing right now. I said, what? What, what, did, what did we do? What did I do? He said, do you know how much food you're leaving on your plate? I said, oh. I didn't know, I hadn't, I didn't know what to say because it was just normal. We finished eating, we were going to leave. And that changed everything the way we looked at the rest of the tour. So mm. we had to be more, more open-minded about what we're seeing and, and referring to what we're used to and we're someplace else. So that really started me thinking about different countries and we were in Jordan and uh, the Dead Sea and we just like, wow. And that kind of changed a, a lot of things for me, which turned into later on, a trip my dad and myself did, just the two of us went to uh, South Africa. So I don't know if that would have happened if I hadn't gone to that State Department trip. So it really changed a lot. How did it influence your music? Not specifically that conversation, but that experience and traveling with these young guys and seeing the world from the exact opposite lens, not a wrong lens, just a different lens. How did that influence you once you came back to New York and started making music again? It taught me that it wasn't just the music, but it said music is kind of like a magic carpet ride. 
it takes it can take you so many places if you give your heart to the music it gives you lift well man you you continue to touch people not only around the world but back now when you come back to the united states you have an opportunity it's a great story we don't have time to unpack it all right now but one of your buddies is playing in a little uh, band on the west coast and you have an opportunity to join him on the tonight show right talk about playing in that band on the biggest show in the world what 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 is that like for you and i mean this before 95 just being back being a guitarist in that band right that was something that i never thought of doing i never dreamed of being on television i never dreamed of doing anything like that and i didn't really like coming to la when we were doing shows when i had bands and making records I couldn't feel the vibe in LA. And then that opportunity came up and I said, well, maybe for a few years I'll do it and then I'll go back to making records. And I love playing with the band, you know, it's just so much fun. And it just turned into more and more things. And it's like, shut up and see what you can contribute to this show. You're here, you signed up for five years, which turned into 18 years, but whatever it is that's here, you know, we're playing songs that I played when I was 15 years old, 16 years old, because that's what helped the show, whether it was classic rock, whether it was blues, whether, you know, we're playing with yeah. Willie Nelson, playing with Dog Horton, we're playing with, you know, all these different artists that come on. We went to Tonight Show Band and play with us. And so more and more, I said, no, this is an opportunity. This is just open this side of it. Stop being so myopic about how you're looking at it and oh, I, I want to play this music, I want to play this music. But this is where you are. This is present time. You're here for a reason and not deny the reason that you're here. And go, you know, like my dad would say, you know, what's in front of you? Do it right or don't do it all. So all that comes back and I just got more comfortable with it. So then I started getting a rhythm of comedy. and But it, it was the same type of... How do you contribute to it? And what's the rhythm of, of jokes? How do you extend the laughter? How can you make it better? And if, you, if you're not making it better, I feel like, what, what am I missing? Why am I, am I not open, open to this? I hitchhiked in Philadelphia, and you don't know what to do here. You go through all of that. You're 13, you're in bars, and now you're here on the stage, you know. And at that time, that show was in 35 different countries. And then I started realizing that jokes have rhythm like music has rhythm. Once a joke is, and people start laughing, was it, how do I extend that? How do I become part of it? It's not just the music. It's how you interpret where you are in a musical way. I had assumed the music was there primarily to entertain the crowd between the skits, between the performances. And then preparing for today, I recognize, no, man, that you were integral in, in all of it. You were a part of the performance, not only during commercial break, but in Jay's monologue and the way he's interacting with guests. Like you, you guys were absolutely part of the Comet stream and, and uh, it took really paying attention to recognize that. And I think that's part of the power of a great background performance. You don't even recognize it's great. It's just quietly taking place in the background. I'm curious though, you, you came on the heels of some big name performers, right? They had their own magic and they certainly had their own persona, big personas. Right. 
you're a shy kid, self-proclaimed from Philly, hitchhiked your way kind of out there. And now you're, you've taken over as the lead. At first, was that your real self performing or did you have to figure out how to let go of the act and just be you? I didn't understand enough of it. I understood a little bit of it. I wanted to, there was stuff that I, I just didn't get. I mean, the first time I was the music director, people in makeup laughed because I had, I was breaking out. I was so nervous. I was so shy and I'm in makeup and I can hear everybody giggling. I said, what's everybody laughing at? <laughs> and they're trying to put up, put makeup all over me because I was breaking out. I was so nervous. They said, there's not going to be enough makeup. Just go out there and, and do whatever it is that you do. The only time I felt comfortable at first was when we started playing music. You know, when we went to commercial, it was like, okay, good. I get to play. But then little by little, little by little, I started to it's not just the commercials. You got to open up, get it, get it going. And then I started understanding that the music was the glue to everything. If the people are the top of the show, after a joke, give it a little lift, be the comment tail, give it a little bit more lift. When somebody comes out, Robin Williams comes out and I said, you know what? I watched a lot of his, his comedy before he came on the show. I said, he doesn't want to know what song we're playing. Let's give him some lift from the second he comes out from behind the curtain. So we're going to play something that, if my guess is right, he's going to start dancing. So whatever he comes at, it's Robin Williams, we just go, punch, dance, 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 you know, and then he'll, he just starts doing it and he starts spinning around and dancing and whatever. And, and uh, says, I don't know whatever you played, but play it again, keep playing it again. And he gets up from a chair and starts dancing again. And then I said, we got it, now I get it. Now when that person comes out, it's their show. We get them from here and we get them to there with their personality, so they feel good. So then I started understanding that, okay, this is gonna, we're gonna be the glue that touches everything. Mm -hmm. If somebody in the audience yells out something, we know what to do with it. So after a while, it all started making more sense. Said, I can contribute here. I can do something here. I can make this. And everything just got funnier. We had more, you know, just because we got more comfortable and I understood what it was to be done. Matt, I'm blown away. You, you dropped and you were name dropping, but you you did. I think you're, you, you love bragging on yourself. So Robin Williams. <laughs> I mean, and he's one of three guys that every one of us listening to my voice have heard of. And that's Tuesday night. And we'll see it again tomorrow night when Robert De Niro walks out. And you do it and it and becomes fun after a while. It was what is that like, though, man, for a shy, humble kid from Philly to wake up, go to set and recognize, my gosh, this is my life now. Yeah, it got me out of out of the shyness thing it it really helped in a lot of ways i think now i talk too much before i, I wouldn't talk at all and now <laughs> you know i'm not disappointed in your shy all right okay kev shut up that's enough this keep, you know because i learned and i got i had fun doing it and, and i started meeting everybody I, I would go see willie nelson's shows i wouldn't even go in the front i'd go in the back and then and the, the uh, driver gates he says oh willie's looking for you and john mccain who's every time he would come to the show and his aide would come down and says uh, uh mr Eubanks, uh a senator is looking for you you know and which means i go up to his room and and he starts talking about basketball 
<laughs> I didn't know anything about college basketball. I wish I did, but I didn't. So I would study whenever I knew he was coming on. I'd look, you know, on ESPN and say, oh, who won yesterday? What, you know? So I did that about maybe four times. And he, he said something that didn't make any, you know, I said, I don't know. I said, John, uh, I don't know much about college basketball. He says, I know, but you really tried all these. <laughs> he says, I knew from day one that you didn't do the college thing. So he says, but I love that. I love that. You should, <laughs> you know, and we, and he was so, you know, I said, I don't see that when I watch you on news and, before we actually knew each other, he said, because they want to see a politician. They want yeah. to feel secure that I know what I'm talking about. And if I start talking about college basketball, I might lose votes. <laughs> and I, I don't want to lose them for the wrong reasons. Everybody can lose votes, you know, but, you know, you're, you're, you want to be sincere about it. So, you know, since I'm here, that's why, like, you know, it calms me down before I go out there to hang with you talking about college basketball, whether you know nothing about it or not, it just makes everything feel a little bit more relaxed. And I need that for, for this show. And you mean, I mean, I met a lot of people doing that. So after a while, it wasn't clearly, it wasn't just about music. It was, you get this opportunity to talk with different people. I mean, a lot of different people. It's a, a very fortunate situation. Again, it's the, the red carpet ride from, from music, it can it can take you all over the place. Kevin, I'm I'm a Missouri guy. I watched your work from uh, the confines of the great Show Me State of Missouri. So that's part of the audience you're performing to. Tens of millions of people tuning in on their television sets. You're right. part of that for 18 years, and there's a live audience. And the live audience matters for the television audience. Like their engagement will either elevate or decrease the engagement for all of us at home. Right. It's pretty, you know, I perform as a presenter and sometimes as a pianist. You're on night after night. And when the audience is lit, it's almost like, hey, hey, we got this. And you just start jamming. On the nights where they just show up with their raincoats on and they're done and you can't get them to uncross their arms. I'm less worried about how does that affect you? Because I already know the answer to that. But how do you get them to uncross their arms, turn the frowns upside down, lean forward and have the time of their lives? So how, how do you turn an audience? Well, in that situation, um, everybody's getting into their seats. I would look out, you know, from the curtain. I would just, you know, I'm looking around. I'm looking for the hot spot in the audience. There's a group, there's always a group of people that they're, they're in LA. They, they just came from Vegas. You know, they're on vacation. <laughs> you know, and they're going to party no matter what. They're here for a great time, you know. So before we go on, um, uh, the singer, Vicky, I would say, there's your pocket right there. You go over there with the mic on the first break. We're going to get their energy to turn on the rest of the audience because they are ready to party. So go over there, you know, don't hand them the mic because you never know what somebody's going to say. <laughs> so you put it up to them and let them say, what are you doing here? And the music is going and said, you know, said, are you out here to party? I said, yeah, yeah. Give it up for them. They're here. Anybody else in here ready to party? And their energy sets the tone of the show. Once we get to that and we just keep, you know, so before you leave them, ask them what song they want to hear. If there's any lull in the show, we'll play that song because they're going to go nuts and that's going to make everybody else go nuts. So you just try to figure out how to get through all that. And people are there to have a good time if they're raining, if it's this, that or whatever. 
they're here for a reason. Let's, let's find it. Let's use it. And, you know, thankful that they're here because that makes everything else float. You began this when Ronald Reagan's VP was in office. Okay. This is a long time ago, man. You start jamming out there in LA. You wrap up when Barack Obama is in office. Right. That's a long time, man. That's a lot of little faces up there around the history wall in third grade. Yeah. How did you see entertainment change during that 18 year run in LA? It changed because of the things that they started showing. I mean, we're talking about OJ Simpson. We're talking about uh, Bill Clinton, the whole thing. We're talking about all of these things became more and more, I guess entertainment isn't the right word for it, but it became on news and what came on news started to become on late night. And it became on late night. It came on, you know, the, the late night show that came mm -hmm. after it. And everything changed after the OJ trial because then court became entertainment. So all these other court shows started coming up. And so all of that started, you know, coming and it got to be a little bit more political. Things got a little bit different. And that was a little, a little strange because these are some serious things that were going on. Even the World Trade Center, you know, what do you do after that? You know, what are you going to do after the next show after that? What, you're going to get people laughing, you, you know? So after a while, you had to figure out how to not try to go too hard with the music to, you know, because this is just, the, this period got to be really serious. All up until, like I said, you know, um, Barack Obama was coming out and I had to wear a tie, I had to wear a shirt, I had to, you know, and so Jay says, well, Kevin's over there in a tie. Is that, you know, it's I'm going to insist that you do a Jay impersonation. I've heard you do it before. It is. <laughs> okay. Here's my, here's my Jay Leno. Yeah, yeah, Kevin, you know, you got a tie on over there. What, 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 special day? You know, I've never seen you in a tie. And, and, and Barack says, you know, Kevin, you look so handsome in a, in a suit. So everything I got, you know, my mom called me or this and that, told you you should wear a tie, I'm glad you wore a suit, you, you didn't even have a suit, I didn't even know you had a suit. And anywhere you saw with the comedy from the politicians, from people that were for O.J. Simpson trial, which we played for those people at for dinner, they needed a break. So they closed down a restaurant and the band went there and played for the people that were in, in the court. So you get to see all of that stuff. So after a while, I don't know if I could put a, my finger on it, but there was a way to get through that and still not try to press it on them so much to force the extension of the laughs and the jokes. But at some point and say, you know, going to this break, we're not going to play any music and we're not going to tell anybody either because they'll say, play music going into commercial. No, we shouldn't play music going on at this break. Mm -hmm. And let everybody just settle down. Let's, so then when we come back, then we can start trying to, you know, push the comedy a little bit more and the, the music giving it some lift. That, that silence is the respect for what it is that they were just talking about. You know, sometimes silence is the best way to do it. When you look back at a multiple decades long career and the successes that you've achieved and hung up on the wall during that time, what are you most proud of? The number one thing I'm proud of is making my parents feel proud. I wanted my parents to be proud of me. I wanted them to know that they, I was fortunate to have my mother and father. I wanted to do everything that made them feel good, 
because I wasn't in Philadelphia. I couldn't see them as much as I wanted to, but they would turn on television and say hi. <laughs> and so I just wanted them to be proud. And the other thing is I was so fortunate to be able to go to New York when I started my music career. The essence of it came out of New York and I played with some of the greatest jazz musicians. I'm talking about Art Blakey, Ron Carter, a lot of different, you know, Roy Haynes, all these right. wonderful piano players. And, and I was making records. I was doing good in New York. I had record deals. I played Blue Note records with Bruce Lumbar, one of the greatest, you know, record producers. Going through all that and having a band, like I said, going to the State Department all, all over, all of that, and then switch over to what's going on in L.A. So a lot of people, they don't remember that because that was a long time ago. And I still love playing all that music and playing with those same musicians. All these other people that I played with, it's almost like disappeared. So at first it was kind of weird to me and said, wow, all the work I did in New York and toured with everybody and learned so much from all these, you know, great musicians. And the first thing everybody says is the Tonight Show with Jay Leno. And I said, right. I wasn't quite sure how to, you know, but after a while, I felt really proud of being able to help open up late night for other late night bands to come on musicians to to get that too. And I call I call uh, Arsenio Hall, I call George Benson, I call, you know, B.B. King, who was a good friend of mine. Without them, it probably wouldn't have happened. That's right. They open up doors and you want to make them proud of you. I went, I was so happy when B.B. King came on one time and he just said, Kevin, when I see you up there, I feel like I, I, I did so much for, for people. And I said, B, yes, you, you know, when you see people like that and they, you know, said, if it wasn't for these people, I wouldn't have been able to make that transition. So I wanted them to be proud. And then I wanted them to feel like, oh, you're playing the music, you help, you know, you, you know, he says, I watch the show all the time. And so all of that, you know, coming together makes me feel that there's always a way to con contribute and still be at a certain level at the same time. Mm. Kevin Eubanks, we are about to be forced into our commercial break, which breaks my heart, man. But we, we have <laughs> seven questions that gather and tether all of our guests together. And truly, man, I, I can and I look forward to our next conversation because we just started scratching the surface at your heart and music and soul, teaching, everything else that you, that you are part of. But I do want to ask you seven questions so that, so that you can join the rest of our guests. The first one is, it's generally asked like this, what is the most impactful book you have ever read? So if you want to answer that question, feel free. Alternatively, what is the most impactful album that you've ever heard? So uh, either book or CD, I'll let you take it forward from there. Okay, I'll do the, the record first. My roommates at the time, they said, will you stop playing that record? Could you please turn the record off? Wow, maybe there's two. Yeah, there's two. One is Oscar Peterson, great, great, great pianist. Solo piano, it's called Tracks, Oscar Peterson Tracks. That really touched me, and that's from a jazz perspective. The other yeah. one is called The Intermounting Flame. John McLaughlin, who's a guitarist, influenced me a lot. That was the time when I was growing up, when I was in, in the 70s, and that touched me because that was my generation. It wasn't something that happened before me. It, wasn't, it was happening as I was, you know, becoming 15 years old. And as a book, 
there's a philosopher called Krishnamurti. And when I was in India, I went to Madras where all his books were, and I saw books that I hadn't seen before. There's a book, and he wrote letters to this person. And within those letters, it seemed like it was the basis of his philosophy about things. I think it's called Letters to a Friend. Yeah. Awesome. What's one positive characteristic or trait that you possessed as a little kid growing up in Philadelphia that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? This might sound weird. When I, when I was a kid, I was always the youngest and I was the, the smallest. And I always wanted to play basketball. I wanted to play third base for the Phillies. But that wasn't going to happen because I was too short. I was too this. I couldn't play ball. But I always loved playing sports. And it, I didn't care that I was the smallest guy on the court. I had a passion for something. And the energy, what I learned from that was the, the energy from, from being passionate about something nobody can touch that. So question number three is this, if your home caught fire and all living things are out and you have an opportunity to run in and grab one item, what's the one thing you would come back out with, Kevin? I don't think I would pull any specific thing out. I mm. might grab a picture on the way out or something like that, but probably not. I would come out with the attitude, it's just a house. Well, as you, as you come out empty-handed, letting the stuff burn, you can rebuild and re-record. Re you sit on a bench and have a long conversation with anyone, living or deceased. Who would you like to be seated next to? The ocean. That's what I would love to have a conversation with is the ocean. And it's all the energy that the, for the planet, it, re, it lets me know that I live on a planet, not in a city. It bring, brought life to everything. And I would like to have a conversation with the ocean and somehow that that has touched everything. So it would be it would be the ocean. What's the best advice the ocean, your parents, some great teacher, Jay, anybody else? Best advice you've ever received, Kevin? If you can contribute, then you're worthy of the strange being of being a human person. We have limited, you know, gifts though we have lots of gifts, we have, you know. Kevin, you banks, you have plenty. And we're going to end with this question. It has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like your one sentence to read? Of course, there's a million things you could think, but totally. the roots of, of all of it. So it, it would be, it would be, um, thank you, mom and dad. Wow. Well, thank you, Kevin Eubanks, for reminding us of the ability we have, regardless of our talents, to contribute, to make the world a little bit of a better place because we are part of it. And my friend, you certainly did exactly that and do exactly that. I want to thank you for being part of our Live Inspired family. Thank you for having me. It's been really inspiring. My friends, that is the legendary jazz musician himself, Kevin Eubanks. My name is John O'Leary, and today is your day. What a gift. Live Inspired. All right, my friends, why don't we begin with this fact? Sitting down with Kevin is a little bit like sitting down with an old friend. He is overflowing with humility, with sincerity, with charm, 
He's just an awesome guy. And at this point in my life, I'm so grateful to call him a friend. What a cool thing that is. I related so much to his gratitude for his mother and his father. Kevin's mom's love of music instilled the confidence he needed to travel the world. Coming out of Philly, but he traveled the world, sharing his musical gifts along the way. His dad instilled a strong work ethic and helped him focus on how to become a household name through humility. Isn't that cool? He became the largest star in music for jazz, late night show, 18 years, and he did so how? With humility, with grace, with that beautiful grin and that joyful spirit. That is awesome. Thank you, Dad, for that. His gratitude reminds me of the appreciation that I have for my dad and for my mom. Their names, you may know now, are Denny and Susan O'Leary. And as we head into this Easter weekend, I look forward to spending time with those two and sharing with them and other family members my love, my admiration, and my appreciation for all that they have done for me. I hope you do the exact same thing for your family as you step into your Easter weekend. And my friends, if you enjoyed hearing from a world-renowned jazz musician, you may enjoy our musician's playlist. I've sat down, you may know this also, listeners, with Journey's Jonathan Kane. Sat down with two-time Grammy winner Lauren Daigle. That was a great one. Legendary entertainer John Tesh, also a phenomenal one. Had a really emotional sit-down with viral country superstar. His name is Walker Hayes. The point is we've had some really cool, really talented, and really humble folks along the way share their stories. I remember specifically from Walker's. He talked about his journey, his successes, his massive losses, his love, his sobriety, failing, falling all the way down, getting back up, trying again. People who showed up for him along the way. Great conversation with Walk. You can learn more about that one and all the other musicians at my podcast channel. Check it out anywhere you draw down your podcast, the Live Inspired channel. Or you can go over to our personal website. It is found at johnolearyinspires.com forward slash podcast. If you go over there, we've got a really cool musicians playlist for those of you who are seeking a little bit of music over this weekend and beyond. So my friends, I want to thank you for subscribing to the Live Inspired Podcast. I want to thank you for commenting that you have been moved by the Live Inspired Podcast. I want to thank you for being part of this community. We know you're out there. We appreciate you tuning in from 50 states and 75 different nations. And we, like you, know that life is filled with challenge. There is indeed headwind. And the foundation is firm and far better days are ahead. So for this time... And until next time, my name is John O'Leary, and today is your day. What a gift. Live inspired. Well, Keeley Company's culture sets them apart, and their people live out the unique culture every single day. Perhaps it's best seen through their philanthropic foundation called Keeley Cares. It was built on a passion for giving of their time, their talent, and their treasure to help improve the communities in which they live and where they work. We're so excited that they were named one of the top corporate philanthropists by the St. Louis Business Journal for 2021. You can learn more about Keeley Cares by visiting them online at keeleycompanies.com.